हेलो एवरीवन एंड वेलकम टू जेएसआई पॉडकास्ट स्पेशल सीरीज ऑन यूएस इलेक्शंस 2020 इन टुडेज एपिसोड वी विल हैव अ क्विक चैट ऑन सेनेटर कामला हैरिसस सिलेक्शन एज एज फॉर्मर वाइस प्रेसिडेंट जो बाइडेन रनिंग मेट बट मोस्टली वी विल बी डाइविंग इनटू लैटिन अमेरिका यूएस लैटिन अमेरिका रिलेशंस एंड इट्स इंपॉर्टेंस ड्यूरिंग दिस इलेक्शन विद प्रोफेसर सेबास्टियन कटरोना who is an assistant professor at the Jindal School of International Affairs hello professor hello thank you so much for the invitation thank you professor so let's dive in uh, so last week uh, we saw during the democratic national convention that senator harris was picked to be vice president biden's running mate which is of course an historical choice uh, why do you think um, it, it was important for uh, pre- uh, vice president biden to pick someone like senator harris as his vice president Finally we have both uh, parties officially confirming their candidates so that i think it's good news because that is official um regarding your question i would say that Kamala Harris and everybody knows this is the first african american woman to run for the for the vice presidency so i think that uh, she will somehow refresh the image of Biden who is 77 years old she's relatively young and she's the daughter of jamaican and indian immigrants so she somehow reflects the growing diversity of the democratic party but most importantly i think that and particularly after the recent killing of jacob blake that is all over the news uh, this week i think that uh, it is believed that kamala harris main task is to help to mobilize african americans the democratic party most loyal constituency uh, for everybody who is aware of the topic four years ago the lack of support from african american explained or helped to explain in part the defeat of hillary clinton so kamala harris has been very active in terms of the black lives matter protest as a california attorney general she has been urging police reform in the context of the nationwide protest against racism so i think that this is going to refresh biden's image and i think it's going to put in the spotlight the issue of racism and the need to reform uh, law enforcement agencies in the united states that would be in my humble opinion the main goal of um, kamala harris as biden running mate okay so next we will be diving into uh, today's main topic which is the us latin america relations i believe that this is an important relation as uh, united states neighbor and also that uh, united, uh, latin america is united states fastest growing trade partner along with that every year we see that so many people from latin america immigrate to the united states for a normal relatively normal life although the meaning of normal has now changed um so when it comes to the countries in latin america one country that has made it to the news quite often over the past few years is venezuela venezuela is also one of the world's largest oil exporter currently the country is going through humanitarian crisis and ever since uh, nicolas nicolas maduro became the president slowly and surely he started taking over different parts of the government which has turned venezuela into a dictatorship can you elaborate on trump's response and what will happen if Venez- what will happen to venezuela under a biden harris administration i think that uh, we have to uh, say that at the very beginning that us foreign policy towards venezuela at least during the trump administration has been characterized by unilateral and this is something 
that could define U.S. foreign policy under uh, the Trump administration in general. But in addition to unilateralism, I would say that Trump's decision has been erratic and contradictory. So let me elaborate a, a bit on this. Um, at the very beginning, we have to say that Trump has considered uh, Maduro as a dictator, and there is some, I would say, uh, bipartisan consensus on this topic. Um, it has developed, he has developed five major initiatives regarding Venezuela, following this idea of considering, of course, Maduro as a dictator. Uh, at the very beginning, Trump has established different economic sanctions uh, to pressure Maduro, including an embargo on Venezuelan crude oil and numerous actions against Cuba. The Trump administration has also been very reluctant to extend the TPS to Venezuelans, which is uh, something that the government created in the 90s to allow foreigners to live legally in the United States because they cannot safely return to their countries due to different natural resources, uh, disasters, and political instability. But something very important that happened uh, last March is when the Justice Department presented indictments on charges of corruption, money laundering, and drug trafficking against Maduro and other 14 government officials, including the Defense Minister Padrino, who is one of the most relevant figures in the regime that is considered a dictatorship today. That same month, the State Department released, and that is what I'm talking about, some contradictory measures, the State Department released a democratic transition framework for Venezuela, a document that illustrates how a peaceful regime change should be accomplished in Venezuela. That framework builds, of course, on the proposals developed by the opposition, particularly, I would say, although this is not confirmed, but I would say that builds on the position of Juan Guaido, stipulates that a negotiated agreement is needed between Maduro and the opposition to transition into a council of state. And this is something important. That council of state will be confirmed not only by the forces and allies of Maduro, but also by those forces that respond to Juan Guaido, the interim president of the uh, Venezuelan Republic. So I think that that plan somehow offers assurances to Venezuelan armed forces, including maintaining Padrino Lopez, and also provides a pathway to arrange new elections. In other words, I would say that that plan makes clear that the U.S. would accept the transitional authority that includes both the Chavista elements and also Washington will not veto Maduro candidacy in a new election. That is what I'm saying that it's quite contradictory. But a few days later of, of that announcement, uh, the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, developed a massive U.S. anti-narcotic initiative involving U.S. naval forces stationed close to Venezuela. So we can see this carrot and hammer uh, strategy developed from the uh, administration of, of, of Trump. Um, a final initiative, which could not be considered uh, official, but I think that it's very relevant if we want to understand what is Trump doing in terms of the bilateral relation, um, is the, uh, the support and propaganda that the United States exerted after uh, Juan Guaido and a group of people tried to entry, according to an alleged humanitarian aid uh, uh, operation into the country while hoping that the armed forces would 
do the same and betray President Maduro. Of course, this initiative failed, something similar to what happened with the invasion of the Bay of Pigs in 1961. But on the other hand, we have Biden, which, as I said at the very beginning, uh, considered as well Maduro as a dictator. So there is a consensus on this topic. And he also believes that the 2019 elections were not legitimate. This is something very important that we have to understand in terms of what could happen after November. Both leaders also reject a military involvement in Venezuela, despite the position of certain hardliners in both of the most relevant political parties in the United States. But apart from these points, there are more differences, I would say, than coincidences. Biden uh, rejects Trump administration's unilateral approach based on economic sanctions. That is perhaps the biggest difference between both candidates. And although Biden has been skeptical of the possibility of establishing a dialogue, pundits believe that Biden would listen to calls for dialogue and even permit the UN involvement in this situation, which I think that will be supported by different regional powers, particularly those that are connected to progressive governments such as Mexico and Argentina. Biden also said that he will grant the temporary protected status, the so-called TPF to Venezuela, affected by humanitarian crisis caused by the Maduro regime. So we have another difference in terms of migration in Venezuela. Also, I think that a new emphasis is likely to be put on working with the Lima Group, uh, another groups to isolate Maduro and address the serious humanitarian and refugee crisis that is happening today uh, in Venezuela. And I think that we have to remember that what Obama did during the last uh, years of his presidency was trying to approach not only Venezuela, but particularly Cuba. And I think this is going to be key in the future. I think that that historic reapproachment with Cuba opened the doors for better relationship with other countries in Latin America. So I think that if uh, Biden finally wins the election in November, we may expect not only a different relationship in terms of Venezuela, but also reapproachment with Cuba. And this situation could create, in my opinion, a window of opportunity to have better support and a widespread support of other countries in Latin America to solve a problem that has been over there for the last five years, that is the Venezuelan crisis. Since uh, you already touched on immigration, uh, over the years we have seen that immigration has been quite a hot topic in the US political debate. People from Latin American countries such as Venezuela, El Salvador and Honduras People have been uh, moving out of the countries and moving into America, hoping for a no hoping for a relatively normal life. Since President Trump has a very strong stance on immigration and he has signed various executive orders, which has uh, eventually resulted in the separation of family at the U.S.-Mexico borders, Biden immediately came out against his policies, calling them racist, and has also come out with a comprehensive immigration reform. Since we've already touched on what effect it's going to have on Latin American countries, could you elaborate more on the on Biden's comprehensive immigration reform? Yes, I think that unlike the case of Venezuela, which we discussed a few minutes ago, and we found that there are some coincidences and bipartisan consensus um, in terms of what the country could do 
to uh, face the situation in that country. I think that there are a lot of differences in terms of migration and immigration uh, in Latin America, particularly from Central American countries. I would say that Trump administration has framed the situation at the southern border as a national emergency, and that is a stepping stone to develop different strategies that this government has uh, performed over the course of the years. Uh, the president, as you all know, has issued harsh resolutions against refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, Trump ended, and this is key, Trump ended decades of bipartisan consensus on welcoming refugees by opening new detention centers, separating children from their parents at the border, something that you mentioned, and also seeking to send asylum seekers to other countries. Um, just to give you a, a, an illustration how tough has been the policy developed by Trump, let me tell you that America today, under the Trump administration, is accepting fewer refugees than ever. Around 18,000 refugees have been accepted uh, during the Trump administration. And if we compare that figure to what happened in 2016 when Trump took office, we know the difference. 110,000 refugees were accepted before Trump took office. So there is a huge difference in that respect. Trump also tried to end Obama's deferred action for childhood arrivals, the so-called DACA policy, which was established in 2016. Although the Supreme Court, of course, uh, tried to frozen that executive decision. Nevertheless, uh, as, as we all know, Trump's continued with his plan to reject that program and even is refusing a lot of applications for that uh, initiative. And I think that if we have to summarize what is Trump doing in terms of migration, and this is very symbolic, of course, we have to see what is he planning to do in terms of the uh, wall with Mexico. The idea of building a wall with Mexico, I think that somehow summarizes what the Trump administration has been doing in terms of uh, migration. On the other hand, um, Biden says that he would work with the Congress in, in a comprehensive immigration reform, which is not likely to happen, I think, but because particularly because the Senate is controlled by Republicans. And we all know that immigration policy in the United States has been subject of bipartisan gridlock for decades. And this is not something that is happening only during the Trump administration, but has happened during most of the administrations in the 21st century. But the, that legislative inaction, I think, that has moved immigration policy largely into the hands of the president. Um, in addition to that major difference, which is trying to work with the Congress, I think that Biden uh, is trying to restore Obama's executive orders in that specific field. Um, Biden has already admitted that he wanted to end Trump's Trump uh, travel bans over more than 13 countries that his administration considers security threats. And I think this includes many Muslim countries that has been rejected in terms of the new policy developed in the Trump administration. Biden also wants to reverse Trump policies that separates parents from children at the border. Biden has promised to end restrictions on this asylum, including the migrant protection protocol. Um, he thinks that, and this is something that has been mentioned during the last convention, that 
uh, the United States should reinstate the DACA program, which would immediately protect and expand the opportunity for dreamers uh, or those adults that migrated to the United States where they were uh, young uh, children. Also, I think that we have to uh, put this into context because uh, most of Biden's proposals are not completely in line, I would say, with the most progressive leaders of his party. Um, we have heard Biden say many times that he will not be in favor of dismantling the federal immigration agencies, such as the Immigration and Custom Enforcement. And this is the main difference, for example, with um, the policies, uh, proposals developed by the Sanders uh, team. Biden also uh, does not support other progressive initiatives like decriminalizing the act of crossing the border without legal authorization. So we can see here a moderated uh, leadership, uh, unlike other progressive leaders of the Democratic uh, Party. As a matter of fact, if you see the news uh, during the last two months, we have seen that Biden has been facing criticism for the immigration enforcement tactic developed under the Obama administration. Something that we have to take into consideration is that many people in the United States uh, label Obama the deporter-in-chief. The deporter-in-chief, why? Because under the Obama administration, over 3 million people, over 3 million people between 2009 and 2016 were deported in the United States. So we have to consider that figure because we tend to believe that because we are talking about a democratic candidate, those policies will be more flexible. And that is something that not always happened in the United States, particularly when dealing with topics that are very sensitive like immigration. But to summarize uh, these differences, I think that the elections are going to press also Biden to take more uh, active uh, stance in terms of immigration. I think he needs to reach Hispanic communities uh, and I think that the launching of the Todos Conviven or, or All with Biden, the, the, the spot that he launched a few weeks ago, is somehow illustrating the need to reach that Hispanic community. And I think that the immigration would be a key topic to discuss for the last uh, two months of the campaign. And uh, to conclude on this topic, I will also say that the United States, uh, if Biden finally wants to recover that leadership internationally, would need to make changes domestically. So this topic, even though it's a domestic topic issue in the United States, it's connected to US foreign policy. It's connected to the role of the United States overseas, because if the United States is not able to address topics like migration, the treatment of the refugees, which was considered by most as a global model, we cannot expect the United States to lead the world in other topics. So I think we have to pay a lot of attention because most of these topics, they may seem domestic topics, but they are connected to the idea and the proposal of Biden to recover that leadership and to work with other countries uh, in a more, I would say, multilateral world. Okay. So next, next we come to the COVID-19 pandemic. As we've seen, it has gravely affected the world. And especially in Latin America, where we have seen that um, 
uh, a lot of people uh, have suffered and so along with that uh, we have now seen that us china relations have also worsened but now china has started to gain influence in latin american countries through uh, medical diplomacy where china has been providing these countries with uh, medical supplies which shows another angle of china's soft power do you think us considers this as a threat and can you comment on what is going to happen to this under the biden harris administration and will they be able to establish a medical leadership in latin america of course i think that this process began even before the pandemic so we have to first consider that latin america has been traditionally considered as a us backer uh, by washington policymakers this happened during most part of the 20th century we all know what happened with the monroe doctrine we all know happened with the us role in the continent during most part of the 20th century i would say but the influence of china has increased dramatically not after the pandemic but i would say even before and i think that we have to emphasize what happened after the 9/11 terrorist attacks after the 9/11 terrorist attacks the us focus at least in terms of foreign policy shift from different places around the world including latin america to the middle east that situation created a window of, of opportunity for china to increase influence of that country into latin america not only because of that structural condition and the attacks on the uh, trade uh, towers and, and, and the twin towers in the united states but also because many progressive leaders were emerging in latin america by that moment so we have to say that today china's influence has been mostly restricted to trade and commerce this is what scholars called soft power um just to give you an example in 2018 china became latin america's second largest trading partner and even the first trading partner and the major trading partner of countries like brazil the total trade uh increased from 17 billion in 2002 to almost 315 billion in 2019 so we can see that exponential growth um in latin america uh i think that something that favors that uh, situation and that trend in latin america is that china and latin america naturally i think are economies that could be considered complementary on the one hand china has access to raw materials such as oil and agricultural goods especially soybeans and i think this is particularly true in the case of the southern core like countries like argentina um, and brazil have been exporting a lot of soybeans to to china but on the other hand we have to say that china has found new markets for chinese goods including manufacturing goods and high added value products but what is most important about this trend is that there are signs also indicating that the economic relationship has not been totally restricted to trade we have also infrastructure investments we have also a banking sector that is prosper prospering very fast but uh, someone may argue that of course we are now here talking about soft influence right uh, because although these are variables that certainly illustrate china's growing influence the military factor the military factor is still missing uh, you know realism would argue that 
this is meant to happen, right? When you have first economic interdependence, you have a lot of trade between the two regions, you may expect in the short term or in the long term to have a greater military influence in the region. Uh, so far, I would say that that influence has not been as visible as we expected in Latin America. But uh, we, we, we think, I think that we, we should consider if, if Biden finally wins the election in November, something different to happen. I think that Biden counts with a unique opportunity because most of the leaders in Latin America, and perhaps the exceptions, of course, are Venezuela and to a lesser extent Mexico with Lopez Obrador and Argentina um, with Fernandez, have turned to the right. So we can expect... Um, better relationship with the United States if Biden wins the election. And I think that this creates a fertile ground for a reapproachment between the U.S. and Latin America. But as I said at the very beginning, uh, something should happen to have this situation really being a reality in Latin America. Uh, Biden, Biden would have to show signs of change. Again, Biden would have to show signs of change. And I think that Something similar happened during the Obama era, where uh, the United States finally decided to reapproach uh, Cuba. So I think that uh, if Biden finally wins the election, and I think that uh, many Latin American presidents are willing that to happen, um, I would say that uh, the recovery of that relationship that was uh, extremely close during most part of the history of Latin America uh, would need some signs uh, to happen. And I think that the situation in Venezuela, the topic of migration and the relationship with Cuba could open the doors for a better relationship between the whole continent and the United States under uh, a Biden administration. Professor, with this, we come to the end of the podcast. Uh, we th thank you so much for taking out the time to enlighten us on this topic. And uh, we would also like to thank the viewers to, for listening to us. I hope you have a great day ahead. Thank, thank you, you so Professor. Much. Thank you so much.